In the beginning, God, the one who is and was and is to come, created everything. He created galaxies, millions of them, stars, trillions. And he created our planet and filled it with breathtaking beauty. Sunrises, sunsets, oceans, mountains, rivers, streams, forests. I mean, what an incredibly beautiful planet we get to call home. Amen? Amen. And not only did God fill this planet with breathtaking beauty, he, he also filled it with life. I mean, everywhere you look, you see life and plants and insects and animals and birds and, and fish. If you were to take a, a shovel and, and, and place, it, place it on the ground and put that dirt under a microscope, it would be teeming with life. And on day six, God created man and woman, the crown of his creation, the very reason why everything came into existence to begin with. The rest of the universe is just God's nursery for us. And he created man in his own image, in his own likeness, placing them in a garden paradise where they had an up-close and personal relationship with God. As crazy as it sounds, God would literally take walks with them in the cool of the morning. I mean, just imagine what it would have been like to live in a world untainted by the corruption of sin. And imagine experiencing intimacy with God like that. Hey, Steve, would you like to take a walk around the lake this morning? Yeah, things were good. They were very good. But unfortunately, they were not very good for very long. You see, even before Adam and Eve made it out of the third chapter of God's 1,189 chapter book, they, they blew it. They screwed up everything, not only for themselves, but for us as well. They disobeyed God. They took that bite. And because of their choice, choices do have consequences. Because of their choice, sin, death, or corruption, and separation invaded God's perfect world. But that's not the whole story. For you see, even before the first couple took the bite out of that forbidden fruit, God already had a plan to set things right. A plan to remove the distance, a plan to give death, sin, and separation a crushing, lethal, and once and for all defeating blow. In Genesis 3.15 we read, God's talking to our enemy, the evil one, Satan. I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. I understand, since the dawn of creation, the overriding theme of human history has been God's passionate pursuit of a prodigal people. Has been the story of a loving God doing whatever it takes, and I mean absolutely whatever it takes, to bring his people back to himself in order to restore that garden intimacy. And God's plan to restore that intimacy was, a, was a, basically a, a three-phase plan. Phase one was the, the nation of, of Israel. I understand through Abraham, God built a nation that would begin to show the world what the one true God looked like. A nation that was to be different than the world, that was to live different than the world. And for 2,000 years, God shapes and prepares this nation for the coming of the Messiah by making a promise to them through Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, make you famous, and you'll be a blessing to others. 
I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. All the families on the earth will be blessed through you. He prepared this nation for the coming of the Messiah by also giving them the law, his words, his commands, his decrees on how to live, by building them a temple where his presence would dwell, by, by giving them a, a sacrificial system, a means by which an unholy people could approach a holy God. He prepared them by, by teaching them about, about holiness, about sin, and teaching them that that obedience leads to blessings and that disobedience and chasing and looking for life and things other than God always has some pretty negative consequences. For 2,000 years, God tries to shape this nation, and it wasn't easy. I mean, God gave them the law, but they, they couldn't keep it. He gave them the temple, but more times than not, it was neglected, treated with contempt, or they forgot whose house it actually was. He gave them kings, but most of them were not so good. He, he sends prophets with words of encouragement and a call to return back to God, but no one listened. Uh, I mean, as you look at this phase of God's redemptive plan, it, there do, just doesn't seem much, there just doesn't seem to be botita. Wow. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Someone says I talk fast, okay? There just doesn't seem to be much hope for these people. In fact, whenever you read through the Old Testament, I, I think we all, if you've ever done it, you get to a place that just kind of wears you out. And that's exactly the point. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, it, it doesn't work. Because it's all designed to point to who? To Jesus. Because he's our only hope. He's the only one that can save us. Get it? Good. Which brings us to phase two in God's plan of redemption. His plan for setting things right between him and us. And that would be Jesus, Son of the living God, who lived a sinless life, who died a sinner's death, a substitutionary death. You see, Jesus died in our place. He died in my place. He died in your place. As I like to say, Jesus paid a debt he did not owe because you owed a debt that you, you could never pay. You see, we must never, never, never forget that God the Father poured out his sin-hating wrath on Jesus so that he could pour out his soul-loving grace on us. Yes, God's passionate pursuit of a prodigal people caught up to them in all its fullness at the cross. Which brings us to phase three, the final phrase, final phase in God's redemptive story. Our phase, the church. His body, his bride, the family of God, the flock of God, the called out ones, the temple of God, the promised messianic kingdom, the only hope for this dark, lost, broken, falling, and upside down world. And this is a phase we get to live in. And oh, how fortunate we are. Grace beats the law every stinking day. I've been listening to uh, uh, the Old Testament Bible through the year, and I'll tell you what, Towards the end of Exodus and the Numbers, my goodness, it is some crazy stuff, y'all. If you haven't, man, if you got a rash, what color is the hair on the rash? How long is it? Go to the priest. You got mildew on your clothes and your house. It's nuts. You know, I'll take grace any day over the law. Amen? Well, welcome to week five of our series, Becoming the Church that He intended, that Jesus intended, that our Savior King intended. 
And like Cameron said, the day's a huge day, right? For the church, it's Pentecost Sunday. It's, it's the church's 1,999th birthday, give or take a year or two. So that's a, we're pretty old, aren't we? <laughs> now, most of us are familiar with birth, right? I, I mean, I think every one of us has been born ourselves, right? And some of us have had the opportunity to be there for the birth of one of our own children. Here's a birth, of, that's the birth of my first child. That's, uh, uh, I forgot about Lieutenant Skinner. Way to go. Thanks for the help there. Uh, uh, that's my, my wife Judy and laying on her arms on May the 20th, 1984, is my, is my daughter Chelsea. And I got to tell you that, that once I knew she was coming, it seemed like it took a really long time to get here, you know? But listen, God waited a whole lot longer than 40 weeks. God waited thousands of years. He waited since the dawn of creation, since Genesis chapter 3, for the church to be born. For the new covenant to be unleashed. So you think he was excited? I mean, you think he was like, oh, okay. I mean, I, I was... I, I, I had Chelsea look at these pictures. Hey, hey I don't have any pictures because I'm terrible at keeping pictures. And she, I had given them to her for safekeeping. And I'm looking, I go, hey, I'm going like, wow, there's none with me and you. And I go, oh, because I'm the camera person, right? Because I didn't hire a photographer in there. The reason I'm not in there is because I was the one taking the pictures. But I got to tell you, I, I was pretty excited. I got to tell you, God was extremely excited when the church was born. And the way I, I, I want to attack our conversation this morning is talking about uh, three things, final preparations, important previews, and then uh, time for the delivery. All right, let's do this, final preparations. And the reason I say final preparations for the birth of the church is because, because just like when you're having your own child, there's some things you can do ahead of time, right? You know, there's things you can do maybe weeks and months before the baby arrives, like maybe a baby shower. Uh, uh, there was a baby shower. Um, someone rented our building uh, yesterday and had a baby shower. I mean, they went all out. I could smell the food when I was working. You know, I thought if I went out and looked real hungry, they may give me some. But, uh, I mean, they came in and they conquered, right? They, they spent six hours setting up, right? right? And, and, and that's some initial preparations. And, and, and so there's some initial preparations that God had made. Uh, we talked about a few of them already, right? Um, like, um, God preparing the nation, God sending his son, and, and also God did some preparing of the world. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 4.4, 4, but when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, now that phrase, the fullness of time, it's, it's packed with uh, uh, power and meaning. And the question is, you know, of all the time in human history, why was first century Palestine the perfect time in all of human history for God to send his son? Well, there's a lot of reasons. Uh, number one, uh, you had Roman peace, the Pax Romana, uh, which made it safe to travel throughout the whole Roman Empire that stretched from Spain to Babylon, from, from Asia to Africa. You had Roman roads that made travel easier. Uh, you had a common language throughout the entire empire. When Alexander the Great conquered the world, he took with him the, the Greek culture and language. Uh, you had Greek philosophers, especially Socrates, that helped prepare the Greek mind for Christ and his gospel, much like Moses prepared the Jewish mind. 
Also, the, the Roman and Greek gods, they were waning in influence. You see, they, like the government, were not delivering much. They fell short of the promises that they made. And then there was, after years of, of Roman rule, the, God's people were hungry for the Messiah. In the fullness of time, God sent his son and birthed his church. So the initial preparations were preparing a nation, sending a son, and then preparing the world, setting the stage. And then in Acts chapter 1, we see, we see the final preparations for the birth of Christ. The final preparations. You know, it's the grab the suitcase, get in the car preparations, right? The, 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 okay, um, time spent with the risen Lord would be the first thing. In Acts chapter 1, after he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus spent time with them, number one, to convince him, them that he was really alive, right? Because if Jesus really did raise from the grave and the tomb really is, is empty, that's a game changer, right? I mean, he even ate bold fish, right? Whatever he had to do. Hey, guys, I'm here. Touch me, right? I'm here. I'm, I'm alive. I, I came back. And then he spent time teaching them about the kingdom. So they needed to spend time with the risen Lord. A second thing, um, their mission needed to be clearly defined, which Jesus does. He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the mission was to be Jesus, a witness for Jesus, to, to go out into the world and give testimony to who Jesus is and, and what Jesus had done. Interestingly, that, that Greek word there for um, witness is M-A-R-T-Y-R. It's where we get our English word martyr. And initially, it simply meant somebody who gave a testimony about something or someone. But because Christians were willing to die giving that testimony, it actually changed the meaning of the word, right? Because they, hey, I'm going to give this testimony even if I have to die. And that changed the meaning of an entire word. Again, their mission was to be witnesses for Christ, and as they went out into the world sharing the gospel. And uh, at, at this time, you know, we think prayer is like a big deal. And, and so if people are leaving here to go somewhere else to represent Christ, it's kind of a cool thing to pray for them. And we have uh, two people in our body, two young people, uh, Jake and Emma, if you guys would come up. I know you're here. And uh, if anybody wants to come up here, let, let's lay hands on and pray for them. They're about to go to the, uh, the DR, Dominican Republic. This is Emma's second time. It's Jake's third time. Uh, the first time he went there, I got to go with them. It's a bunch of great people, but there's some really, there's some really great needs in, in the Dominican Republic. You know, one of the big things is there is a lot of uh, uh, sex trafficking going on in there, and, and, which is not good at all. And so let, let's pray for these young people. And their team. Heavenly Father, uh, you clearly define your mission is, is for us to, is to be your witnesses here and around the world um, to represent you. And God, I, I, right now, I, I lift up Jake and Emma to you. And Father God, I just pray that you would help them to be your witnesses. God, help them to represent you well in the Dominican Republic. God, I, I pray for their team. 
God, I pray that there'll be a spirit of unity among their team. I, I pray for the, uh, the church that they partner with over there. There's so many good people there. And God, right now, there's people that Jake and Emma have not yet met. There's believers they're going to work shoulder to shoulder with. I, I pray you make those relationships strong and deep. And God, there's hurting people they're going to run into. God, there's people that do not know you. And God, I pray that you will give them the courage and the boldness, Lord, to, uh, to speak a good word about you. God, give them eyes to see the opportunities that are before them. And God, help them to be a light in that place. God, help them to be a city on the hill. And God, I just pray, Lord, that they have an opportunity to, to share your gospel, Lord, to, to give a, 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 a hug to a, a child that is hurting, Lord, to show love to people who maybe have never experienced it in their entire lives. So God, just bless them and use them, and may they be your witnesses in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks, guys, for going. Absolutely, sir. Missed it. <laughs> Amen. A, a, a third final preparation is that the king needed to ascend to his throne. Acts chapter 1, verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. This is called the ascension, right? And why does the ascension even matter? Well, number one, uh, because Jesus had, had finished his work. He accomplished what he, he came to do. It was time to go home. Uh, number two, it was time for him to get busy at his, his new role of interceding for you and I. And it was time for the king to, to take his throne. The Hebrew writer says this, let us run with endurance a race that lies before us. It can get hard sometimes, can't it? Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured the cross and despised the shame and sat down at the right hand of God's throne. Another reason ascension matters is because Jesus had to go home, right? To prepare a place at the Father's house for us. And a fifth reason it matters is because Jesus said, hey, it's a good, you know, I know you don't want me to go, but it's really a good thing because when I go, I get to send who? I get to send the Holy Spirit. And he's going to do great things in and through you. A final preparation was that the followers needed to be united in prayer. Acts 1.14. These all with one mind. And it literally says that in the Greek. With one mind. And see, when, when we are with one mind, I think prayer is just something that you do. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Prayer is like a really big deal. Amen? I mean, prayer matters. Uh, what can prayer do? Anything God can do because prayer moves the hand of God. Amen? I mean, we've seen it happen. We see... God moving, and I want to tell you, the early church, when they move forward, they move forward on their knees. Check out this, these words from a guy named Samuel Chadwick. The one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from our prayerless studies, our prayerless work, or our prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but does what? He trembles. When we pray, prayer matters, right? And as a church, we're trying to make prayer 
a bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger deal, right? Because we can't do things in our own strength, right? We can't be the church God wants us to be in our own strength. You can't be the mom or dad or husband or wife, student or worker that God wants you to be in your own strength. And so prayer matters. And and, and I'm going to pray again, like we did last time. You know, once a month we collect food. You know, and as I said before, it's so true. You know, most of us don't worry whether we're going to have food, right, to feed our kids. There's people in our actual community that have to wonder about that. And so once a month we, we collect food and to try to spark more food coming in, we you know, do competitions with the life groups. But what I want to encourage you is if you haven't participated, you know, next time bring one can, and then each week, each month, try to beat your record. Well, I brought one, now I'm going to bring two. I brought two, now I'm going to bring three. Because you know, I'd really like to see the whole stage full where we have to rent a truck to take it, right? Because there's so many hungry people. And so what I believe, not because there's any power in us, I believe that if, if, if you all would come up here, feel free if you want to, and, and we pray over this stuff, because this is going to be in the table, the pantry of someone in our community that's hungry. Maybe they know Jesus, maybe they don't. And I just believe that if we pray over these things, they may make a difference. So uh, if y'all would like to join me up here, I'm just going to pray over a can of Campbell's tomato soup. <laughs> Last month, I prayed over a can of chili. Okay, we believe this makes a difference. I got the mandarin orchards. Okay, <laughs> mandarin orchards are covered too. Heavenly Father, God, we, God, we love you. And God, we thank you that uh, you provide for us so well. Most of our pantries are full. Our refrigerators are full. Usually we have to go in there and clean out the leftovers that we never got around to eating because they went bad. And yet there's people in our community, there's moms and dads, there's single moms. And that's not their story, God. Um, Their story is one of struggle. They're struggling to pay the rent. They're struggling to keep that rundown car running, God. And they're struggling even to feed their babies, to feed their kids. And God, right now, I I just pray over this food. Um, God, I, I, I pray that you would just bless it and use it. God, I, I pray, I, I lift up, you know, um, you know, fish and loaves, breads and loaves, I always get their name wrong, you know who they are, God, but I thank you for their ministry, and God, I, I pray that people will come to know you, the bread of life, uh, God, I, I pray that, uh, you know, homes that are struggling right now financially with conflict, God, I pray, that, I pray for healing, I pray for hope, I pray for change, and God, I, I believe, Lord, because we know each of these food items will be in their homes, God, that what we're doing right now makes a difference because you love these people and you've called us, your people, to look after the less fortunate. God, help us to do better and God, use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Loaves and fishes. Loaves and fishes. <laughs> That's good stuff. I know I had someone with that 5,000 thing, you know. And, and lastly, um, to get ready for the birth of church, there, um, there needed to be a replacement for Judas. Uh, Peter stands up and, he's, and he, he says, hey, everything about Judas needed to be fulfilled. And also what is written in Psalm 109 verse 8 where it said, may another take his place of leadership. And in Acts 1, 23 through 28, Peter tells them that, hey, we gotta, we got to choose someone who's been with us from the time Jesus was baptized up and through the resurrection. Uh, two guys' names were thrown up, and 
they prayed asking God, God, you know everybody's heart, you know the right one, and Matthias was added to their number. And so the final preparations for the birth are time spent with the risen Lord, their mission clearly defined, the king taking his throne and replacing of Judas. And next, some, some important previews before we jump into Acts chapter 2. Some things we're going to see, right? This is huge. Right? God's been waiting since creation. In the birth of the church, we see the second, what I call the second Sinai. Okay? And, and if you remember the first Sinai, right, when God gave the, uh, the first covenant, and I have a, a little chart that should pop up, and, and uh, you had a loud sound, you had fire, you had the birth of the old covenant, and it was identified Moses as God's spokesman as he was on top of that mountain. In Acts chapter 2, what do you have? A loud sound, you have fire, you have birth of the new covenant, and you have the apostles being identified as God's spokesman, all right? It's not an accident that this happened this way. This is the second Sinai, okay? The birth of the new covenant is a huge deal. The uh, the prophets talked about it. Jeremiah talked about it in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. I'm not going to read that. Um, but we see the second Sinai, all right? Also, in the birth of church, we see judgment on national Israel. Uh, Peter in Acts 2 is going to pronounce God's judgment on the nation for killing the Messiah. We, we also see the reversal of Babel. I don't know if you remember in, in Genesis chapter 11, uh, God calls people to speak different languages, right? And it calls people to disperse. Well, and guess what? In Acts chapter 2, God's going to use languages to do what? To bring people together. Uh, we also see the coming of the Holy Spirit to, to fall on in power and identify the 12 apostles and also to indwell believers as the gift intended to restore and transform and recreate his people. You see, the Holy Spirit came to work out in us what Christ has already won for us, right? It's already won, but the Holy Spirit wants to work out in us what Christ has won for us. And finally, we're going to see the gospel preached for the first time, and we're going to see the terms of the, of the new covenant. Okay, like I said earlier, it's time to grab the suitcase and get in the car because it's time for the delivery, and the way I, I want to look at this is, is to talk about the event, then Peter's explanation, and their response. Okay, huge stuff. When the day of Pentecost came, they, the apostles, were all together in one place. The day of Pentecost was 50 days after the Passover. It, it celebrated the harvest. And understand, since the intertestamental period, Pentecost was also a time when they celebrated the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, which happened about 50 days after the Exodus. Now, there were three feasts that the Jews needed to celebrate. Passover happened in March and April. Tabernacles happened in the fall. And then you had Pentecost, usually in early June. And the Jewish people who lived far away had to, had to attend at least one. Now, now, which one do you think they chose? Well, they chose the day of Pentecost because you had better weather and, and all the shipping lanes were open. Now, you, do you think it was an accident that God chose this feast, the most highly attended, 
the one where they celebrate the harvest and the giving of the law to birth his church. Take a look at this map right here. People from all these nations had come to celebrate Pentecost. And they saw the church being born. And when, they, when, when the time is over, where are, they, where are they going? Going back home. Traveling on those roads that Rome had built. Traveling safely, safely because of the Pax Romana, right? Peter continues, or Luke continues. Suddenly, a, a, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were, where they were sitting. A, a loud wind, a sound of wind, like you know, not even actual wind, you know. That would be even freakier, right? To, to have the sound of wind blowing coming down on you, not horizontally, uh, but you don't feel it blowing. Filling the room. Had to be crazy. Then they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire. Remember, second Sinai. We got the loud sound. We, we, got the, we got the fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit enabled them. Luke continues in Acts chapter 2, verse 5. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Now, the Galileans were known as a bunch of hillbillies, right? You could say, aren't they from West Virginia or something like that, right? <laughs> and we're Albemarle County. Aren't they from Greene County? Whatever, right? They're like, hey, wait a second. They're speaking rather intelligently right here, and we know where they're from. This is kind of crazy. That how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Again, it's the reversal of Babel. And Luke almost exhausts his vocabulary. He says they were bewildered. They were utterly amazed. Down in verse 12, they're amazed and perplexed. In other words, they're totally blown away. And, and everybody there knows, hey, something is happening here, and it's not natural, and it's definitely of God. Luke continues. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of uh, Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, in our own language. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. They're drunk. That's the event. And now for God's answer through Peter of, hey, what, what does this mean? What does this mean? The explanation. And Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd of thousands, fellow Jews, and all you who live in Jerusalem. Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. We don't get drunk to twelve, right? And, 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 then, and then he begins to explain what's going on. And in his explanation, you know, there's like, he makes three major points. Here, here's what's going on. And, and, the, and the first thing going on, the first thing that this means is that the gospel, the new covenant, is for all people. He says this. 
No, hey, we're not drunk. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In, in, in the last days, in the, in, in the, in the days of, of God's final covenant, when God will deal with his people in a new and better way, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. By the way, God still uses visions and dreams, especially in the Middle East, to convert people. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. He said, my, my spirit will fall on all people, sons and daughters, men and women, young and old. And, and unfortunately, we've lost our shock value that God would invite everybody you know, but if you were in the crowd that day and heard that, your jaw would drop, drop to the ground. Are you kidding me? God is inviting everybody. God's going to pour out his spirit on all people, on all flesh. They were shocked, though they shouldn't be because uh, the prophets talked about it. But you can sometimes hear things and not get it because you don't want to get it. Even though Peter said these words, right? The first Gentile convert to the church wasn't to Acts chapter 10, which is probably 10 years into the church, right? So it's one thing to speak truth. It's another to live it out. And then down in verse 21, uh, we see the conclusion of his introductory statement. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Will be saved. Everyone. And see, the point, the awesome thing, the jaw-dropping point of this verse is not that you only have to call on the Lord, it's that you actually get to, right? Not that you, that you get to, that God would allow you to call upon his name. What does this mean? That the gospel, the new covenant is, is for all people. It's for all people. Next he says that it means that a national judgment is coming. I will show you wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. Now, when we read that with 21st century eyes, that's, like, oh, that's got to be the world, like, ending. But remember, in studying the Bible, it's like, it, not what it means to us, what did it mean to them? And, and, and they were used to this language. Whenever God pronounced judgment on the nation, this is the language that he would use. Many examples of this in Isaiah chapter 13. We read this. This is God's judgment on, on Babylon. The stars of the sky and the constellation will not give their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shine. When God judged Egypt, when I snuff you out, Ezekiel 32, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon will not give light. I will darken all the shining lights in the heavens over you and will bring darkness on your mind. This is the declaration of the Lord. And so when the Jews heard Peter say this, they're like, uh-oh, someone is in a lot of trouble. I wonder who. And Peter's going to be like, uh, it's going to be you. What does this mean? The gospel is for all people. And that's good news, right? I, I, I'm glad that I, I'm invited as a Gentile, right? Uh, national judgment is coming and that Jesus is 
the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. In these verses, Peter's going to, he's going to say, hey, you want to know why all this stuff is happening? It's because Jesus is the Messiah. In verse 22, he says, Jesus is from God. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth is a man accredited by God to you. How did God prove that Jesus was from him? By miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, and you know it. He didn't do them in secret. He did them on the mountains. He did them on the roadside. He did them at the temple. Jesus was from God. Verse 23, he tells us Jesus died. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Question, who is ultimately responsible for killing Jesus? God, right? This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan. It's God's plan. Next, he's going to talk about how Jesus rose from the dead. Interestingly, he spends one verse talking about Jesus' life and ministry, one talking about his death. He's going to spend 12 verses talking about the resurrection, which was a focal point of the preaching of the apostles. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. And then verse 24, we read, Peter says, but God... You killed him, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then Peter quotes a messianic psalm, Psalm 16. He's proven, hey, from the Old Testament that this is the Messiah. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You've made known to me the past of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. I mean, why was Jesus not shaken? And why was his heart glad? And why did his body rest in hope? Because Jesus knew that the Father was with him. So do we. And what has God made known? God has made known the paths of life. And where is joy found? Joy is found in the Father's presence. Peter continues, fellow Israelites, I can tell you something confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. And it, I think it still is. Here's a picture of, and I'm pretty sure that's where he at, he's at. His bones are probably in there, right? But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, He spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Yeah, everything that's going on, everything that's happening, Jesus is behind everything. He's the reason for everything. And then he he uses another psalm to prove to them. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then he wraps it up in verse 36. 
Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. What does this mean? It means the gospel is for all people. A national judgment is coming in that Jesus is the Christ. Now for the response. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And listen, when they asked that question, they didn't know the answer. And they didn't know even if there was an answer. I mean, have you ever portrayed somebody? You know, like, I mean, you really portrayed them and you needed forgiveness. Right? And you just say, hey, I am so sorry. Is there anything I can do to fix this thing? At the time, you don't even know, right? You're hoping, right? Man, I, I know, I know there's something. You're hoping, right? That's where they were, right? They got, man, we're in a bad spot. We're in a bad spot. And, and I don't know if there's an answer, Peter. I don't know if there's anything we can do. But is there something we can do to fix this? Because God is angry at us because we have killed our own Messiah. And then Peter says this. Peter replied, Repent to be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And repentance is much more than being sorry for our sins. It, repentance is basically, it's saying, I'm throwing away my agenda for life, and I'm picking up God's agenda. You know, it's like I'm on this army fighting against God. Guess what? I'm coming out of the castle gates. I'm walking down to the other side, and I'm coming over here, and now I'm, I'm fighting for God. It's, a, it's not just a passive thing. It's a very active thing. It's an ongoing thing. And then he says, repent, right? I'm, I don't want to be on a boss anymore in my life. Uh, you know, how does that work for you when you're the boss of your life? Does it work good? Right? It, 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 probably not, right? And maybe God brought you today and said, you know what, it's time for you to quit living for yourself, throw down your agenda, and pick up God's agenda, right? Because what you're doing, it's just not working, and you know it. You know it's not working. They knew it wasn't working for them. It's time to change your allegiance from yourself to, to God. Then he says to be baptized, to be immersed, that's what the word means, in the name of Jesus. And the phrase of the name of was a technical term used in the world of Greek business and commerce, it was used to indicate the transfer of a sum of money or an item of property into the account bearing the owner's name. See, at our baptism, there's a transfer of ownership. We no longer own our lives. We're baptized in the name of Jesus. He now owns our lives, and his is the name that is to matter most in our lives. Amen? We're about done, but I, I need to get done, <laughs> you know. And, and, we, and we shouldn't be surprised that Peter said baptism was a part of the terms of the new covenant, right? Lean in. Jesus was baptized, right? He told John to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, this is what God is calling his people to do right now. And, and I live under the law. And also live under whatever God calls me to do. If God says I got to do it, I'm just going to do it. That's why Jesus did it. And, and, and look at what Jesus said to his disciples, right? 
in, in Matthew 28, he says, go into the world and make disciples of all nations. How do you do that? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in Mark 16, 16, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. And remember what Jesus said about the kingdom. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of what? Water and of spirit. In the Old Testament, right? You know, there were so many ceremonies where ritual washings, right? And, and, and what was outside the, the whole the holy place, before you could enter there, before a priest could enter there, they had a huge bronze laver full of what? Full of water. And they had to wash before they came into the presence of God. And the rest of the New Testament, uh, we, we see these teachings on baptism. Romans chapter 6, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, the very thing that saves us. We're therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we'll certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Paul said in Galatians 3.27, all, all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And what a garment it is. Colossians 2.11 and 12. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. Having been buried with him in the baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Titus 3.5. He saved us not because of the righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. Titus 3.5. He saved us through the washings of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And Peter says in 1 Peter 3.21, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not to remove all dirt from the flesh, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, Peter's answer is the cure to the double curse of sin. Remember that, that old song, Rock of Ages? Cleft for me, right? Be of sin, the what? Double cure. Anybody remember that also? B of sin, the double cure. Uh, check, these, check this out. The curse of sin. Uh, okay, here's, it's a two-part curse, right? Curse, sin makes us guilty. The cure, forgiveness of sins. And that's called what? Justification, right? Just as if you never sinned. Crazy enough, those, those people that day who found out they killed Jesus, when they did what Peter said to do, guess what? They were justified. And God looked at them just as if they never sinned, right? That's, that's, I, I say that's a good deal, right? That's, I, I, sign me up, right? Here is the next curse of sin. Sin corrupts us, right? Messes us up, right? It makes us not live the life that we can live or are called to live. It, it causes us not to live the image-bearing life that we should be living. That's the curse. What's the cure? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, right? That's the cure. Be a sin, the double cure. The, the Holy Spirit, right, works out in you what Christ already won for you. The Holy Spirit works out his fruit in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And, 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 and the churchy word for that is sanctification, right? And that's a process. 
ain't it? <laughs> I mean, you're justified instantly, but becoming like Jesus, oh my goodness, right? Man, that, that, <laughs> some days I feel pretty good in my sanctification, some days not so good. But it, it's a process, right? But I, as I like to say, it's about progress, not perfection, right? It's about progress. And the Holy Spirit is the power to make that happen, all right? And, and so they, they're asking, right, just like you, you betrayed somebody. You're on your knees, man. You want them to forgive you. You know, is there anything I can do? I was wrong. And they're like, and they hear his answer. Peter continues, the promise. See, this, this is a promise, man. It, this promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message, which means some didn't, we're what? We're baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And God was so excited because the birth of the church, the unleashing of the new covenant, meant that you and I could be justified by his blood alone. Not by what we do or don't do, but by surrendering our lives to Jesus Christ. God's like, now they can be in my presence. Now the wall that separated us has been kicked down. Man, now I can have that garden intimacy again. And God is excited because you know what? They've been, the law just didn't work, but now I get to live inside of them. And I know what the kind of life they want to live because they're made in my image. And now my power is inside of them because they've been justified. And now they can live the lives that I've always dreamed that they would live. Happy birthday, church. God, we love you. And, and God, I thank you for this time to, to talk about the birth of your church, the unleashing of the new covenant. Thank you for your mercy and for your grace. And God, we know that we've offended you, Lord. But we know what the answer is, God. We just repent and we're baptized for forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And God, I just pray for anyone in this room, Lord, who, who's, who is a, believe, a baptized believer but's wandered away, God, that they know all they got to do is just turn around and you're there. You, you run and meet the prodigal, Lord. You run down the road to meet him and wrap your arms around him. And God, I pray for anyone here today, Lord, that believes in who you are and, and is yet to... You know, the surrender to you and repentance and baptism, Lord, that, Lord, that you, if they're ready to do that, if they're ready to respond like the people, if they accept your message, accept Peter's message, that they would do so today. In Jesus' name, amen.